Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Andrew Gunling, J.J. Devaney, another Champions League Wednesday. What's up, brother? I'll tell you, I needed soccer the last two days to give me the bright point in the day. It hasn't stopped raining in New York since Sunday. I know. But you know what? These things even out because we had gone, it felt like weeks without rain towards the end of the summer. So, you know, these (laughs) are the trades you make. That's not how it works. You complain about the weather you're in. What are you talking about? Look, I'm all about the data. You got to get to that average rainfall number. You got to get there somehow. You you must. I I saw a stat once that, because like everyone associates Seattle as the rainfall capital of the country. Yeah. I saw a stat once that New York actually gets more rainfall per year than Seattle, but I think Seattle has more cloudy days. I should note that that could have been utter b- <laughs> what I just said. I think I saw it somewhere. You have no idea. I, I, I trust the animals to do the research and either validate or invalidate what I just said. They are, but I know I saw it once. They are unbelievable, the animals. Oh, they, they'll find out. Oh, they will, absolutely. And you know what they'll resent most of all? Starting a podcast with weather talk, and I take this is a yeah, this is entirely on you. I take full responsibility for that. Look, we have certain things that interest us. Weather interests us. Nature interests us. World War Two. Yeah, yeah. Films that other people don't like. Yeah, and sometimes a combination of all these things. I'm watching a movie on Netflix uh, right now because since I've been taking the train, as I've mentioned, it's given me time to watch film uh, on my commute. What am I? I'm watching one right now. It's a Danish. A Danish movie, a World War II movie. Oh, it's uh, subtitled. I, yeah, of course, of course. I'm halfway through it. It's it's unbelievable. Really, it's unbelievable, man. Uh, and it's a, and I it's can't a, just like, sit here and say that and then move on. I got to no, I got to find the and name it's a of proper, it. It's a proper Danish production. Like it's the full. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So it's got that kind of grim Scandinavian uh, vibe to it. Well, I mean, it's World War II, JJ. It's going to be grim. Yeah, it's grim. There's a lot of grim in that in that time. Yeah, period. it wasn't a lot of rainbows. Um, you talk for a sec while I find what it's called. Yeah, I've actually, uh, me and my girlfriend, have decided to dive or re-dive or give full commitment to watching It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Well, the opposite of grim. Um, well, it, it, sometimes the comedy is quite grim, but it's, I don't know. I didn't like it first time round, and it was one of those things that I would just dip in and out of. When I was on a plane, I would watch an episode of It's Always Sunny, and I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. We're in the middle of... Towards the end of season two, so you've got uh, Danny DeVito fully ensconced in the gang, and uh, it really makes me want to move to Philadelphia and open up an Irish bar. The Bombardment, by the way, on Netflix. The Bombardment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Tough watch, but... Very tough watch, and we're about to bombard you with some soccer, folks. (sighs) There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Obviously, there was what happened over the weekend couple marquee events in the Premier League that are certainly going to be discussed on this podcast. Of course, like we said, uh, the Champions League, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, Jeff Carlisle is going to join us a little bit later in the podcast for a discussion on the the Sally Yates report that came out about um, abuse in women's soccer in the United States. And it's, I mean, it was just such, it's troubling to read. Um, I wish I could say that it's shocking. Now, there are elements of it that are shocking, but we've come to find over the years in sports that whether it be Penn State up through uh, USA Gymnastics, we've just come to find that power causes people to do horrible things. And 
this is yet another one of those situations where people in positions of power, namely coaches in this situation, did horrible things to players that they felt they had power over. And um, and this report is is revealing, and you hope that it is kind of a tipping point moment in that sort of behavior from people that you're supposed to trust and look up to. And that, uh, obviously, a lot of coaches failed um, failed their players in, in horrible ways. And so we'll talk to Jeff a little bit about that report later on in the podcast because um, it's it, – it's fascinating stuff for all the wrong reasons. Um, so that's uh, that's coming up a little bit later. But JJ, like I said, we'll start we'll start in Europe, the UEFA Champions League. We're halfway through the group stage, and you've got some questions. We're ha- well, yeah, but I mean they're pretty they're pretty. Simple. I love them. I love them. I love when you go simple on the rundown because sometimes you like. Remember the early days of the podcast? Oh my God, our rundowns would be four pages long before Andrew- I even wrote down an, like an actual <laughs> note of my own. Every single game, guys. Yeah. And you would think, because a lot of people say, oh, you missed that game or you didn't do it. We, didn't, we don't cover a game because there's no space and because too much, uh, it's just too much. Early days, we would have bored the crap out of you. So It's so funny you say this, oh. JJ. So I, I just recently, this past week, it's amazing that you bring this up now. I went back and was looking through early podcasts. I was just like cataloging uh, a lot of the early podcasts that we did. Sadly, I can't find our initial podcast from 2014. Don't know where they are. That's when we had a, a quote-unquote producer. <laughs> he was saving them and putting them somewhere. I don't know where they are. Jeff. But that didn't last all that long, and then we kind of took over all all elements of the operation. JJ, if you were to go back and see some of the things that we were doing early on in this podcast, like it's still us. Our dynamic hasn't changed. Our friendship hasn't changed. But like some of the things we were covering... It's a different show. It's a different show. I think we, on future episodes, maybe like once a week or once every other week, I'll pull up a rundown and I'll just read some of the things that happened. Maybe on like this corresponding day seven years ago. <laughs> this day in yeah, God like of Slight this, this podcast, the week of this back in 2015. Because uh, it was wild. It was wild. Yeah, we, we were unhinged. <laughs> I think we've got a better formula going now. So anyway, back to the Champions League. Uh, so, yeah, I have questions, but I only have two. We're halfway through the groups. Okay. You know I'm a big mile marker guy, whether it be life, sports, whatever. I like to take moments in life and, and reflect. reflect. Yeah. And so halfway through the group stage, I figured this is a, a mile marker, albeit a short one, but nevertheless. So who's the strongest so far? What are the teams that you're looking at in the group stage and saying after three games, huh? Because I have one that has that has jumped off the off the page to me in a way that I was not expecting. Oh, are you, are you going to say Napoli? Napoli. Oh, unbelievable! Napoli. Um, they've gone, and I'd say we saw the four-one victory that they had against Liverpool, and we thought, oh, huh, what is that about? And <laughs> did, we, did we say it like that? <laughs> and now we've watched them since, and it's and the feeling that you you get when you watch them is, oh, like that was not. There was nothing fluky about that. Like, that wasn't just, oh, maybe Liverpool are going to have a down season. Okay, that may very well be true. But you watch Napoli at this point, uh, uh, the, the subsequent two games in the Champions League, and everything that they've done in Serie A where they're still unbeaten. Right. And you think, oh, no, no, no. That was that was actually a, a legitimately great team flexing their muscle against another team that, that at the time we thought was great. Maybe Liverpool has a, a bit of a regression, but still... This is a great team right now. And I've spent a lot of time mourning the fact that the previous iterations of Napoli um, that we saw didn't really maybe deliver on what they should have. But this team is absolutely just off to a flyer this season. I don't want to put the kiss of death on them. But watching oh, what we have they, to report the news. <laughs> watching what they did to Ajax 
I they gave Ajax their let's see. Opta said Ajax have suffered their heaviest defeat in all competitions since November 1964, which was a 9-4 against uh, Feyenoord in the Eredivisie. Uh, Ajax have conceded five goals in the European game for only the second time after a 5-1 loss against Bayern München in the <laughs> European Cup in 1980. They've never conceded six. Humbled. Unbelievable. Ripped apart. And I don't like I don't want to focus on on Ajax's misery, but that just shows you the level of performance that Napoli put in, and they they ran them ragged, they opened them up, just destroyed them. Uh, I I've never seen Ajax or the, the recent Ajax, the recent good Ajax, being so like just completely dominated. It it was unbelievable. Torn asunder, I believe, is what you're looking uh, for. Torn asunder, correctly. Um, Kavarskaya just. Unbelievable. Again, his name, I mean, no one's going to be able to... Kavicha, Kavarachkaya, is how you say it. But, I mean, he's going to be the name on everybody's lips (laughs) next summer. The Premier League will be all over this guy. Just fantastic performance. Um, Have we got the audio of his goal? Sure do. Oh, I want to hear that. This was the fifth for Napoli. Both sets of players lax at the moment. Kvaratshelia back on his feet, trying to do some damage. He might as well. Great play. Kvaras goes on. It's five. Now you'll notice in that as well the curse of the muted sounds. It continues. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going on with I, the audio. I don't know what's I think we go- just have to accept it. I, I can't accept it. They've <laughs> yeah, got to figure it out. It's not good and it's happening across all these games. So I'm going to launch a, a barrage of emails to the, the people in the powers that be to sort that out. That's but, a good idea. But, you know, Oshiman was out. He's injured. Didn't matter. Raspadori comes in, grabs a brace. Um, Diego Simeone, son of Simeone, mm-hmm. r- rounded things off with a six goal. They were just they were just sensational. Well, I think to watch them is just like... A pleasure? Well, it, it's very aesthetically pleasing, yeah. honestly. Like, I'm not saying that to, to be joking about or anything like the the way they their first goal is set up is they just kind of like carve through the midfield um the finish from Raspadori on the header across the face of goal all of it from beginning to end was just kind of a thing of beauty um Napoli JJ you're talking about some of their flattering statistics they've scored at least three goals in three straight Champions League games for the first time in their history I wonder um just because I guess of the way that this wasn't necessarily expected. I don't know if they went into the Champions League or, or Serie A viewing themselves. Well, they, they might have viewed themselves, but I, from the outside, I don't know if anyone looked at them and said, okay, that's a contender right there. I mean, right now, like if you're power-ranking managers in Europe, <laughs> so Pep is one. I think that we just accept that. But Spalletti's got to be top three oh, yeah. with what he's getting out of this team. But I never expected it. I actually thought, because I was... I, Look at the list. He's he's managed since 1994. Empoli, Sampdoria, Venezia, Udinese, Ancona, another spell at Udinese, Roma, Zenit, St. Petersburg, Roma, Inter Milan, Napoli. He's kind of a... I, he's Journey, not, are you looking for journeyman? That's not fair. I was going to say... There's a negative connotation to that, but I mean... Yeah, I mean, he's been around the blocks, and I've, I suppose at other jobs I didn't really rate him that highly. But just fantastic what he's doing right now. Yeah. It's br- it's brilliant. I mean, and look at how Zembo and Guisa played in this game. And, like, we remember him at Fulham. And, like, now he's just completely bossing the midfield for Napoli. You remember him at Fulham. I I, I have no recollection I of I think about it Fulham. daily. He's he's so good. There was one moment he had... He, I can't remember. He was in the second half. He engineered his own chance. 
literally wins the ball back on the press, beats four or five guys, and really should have passed the ball. But it, at that point, it's like four or five. So he's like, and he just slides one past the post. They are appointment viewing now yeah. in European football, and they have started out the strongest. Can I name one more team? that started really strong outside of the established order. Oh, because I was going to name one of the established order. Oh, do you want to go established order? Well, Manchester City. I mean, if we're talking about teams right now that are fun to watch, like the way they're scoring goals, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about them a little bit more when we talk about the Premier League with what they did. Sure we will. Dropping six on Manchester United over the weekend. But like, I don't know. I have some thoughts. I guess I'll save them. I guess I'll save them. Save your thoughts. I was going to say Real Madrid keep on trucking. Uh, you know, another team that's looking fairly strong. Uh, but I want to talk about about Club Bruges, okay. who were top one, of the group. Top of the group. Now, you could look at it and say that's a group that they should be maybe competing for the second spot. But Atleti are bottom, and Bruges are top, and I think that's notable. Now, just a little bit of history: Bruges are one of those clubs that, in the new wave of money in football, kind of got left behind. But they were a team, they're the only Belgium team to compete in European Cup final. They played Liverpool in 1978. And they're a team of some stature. And I got to see them in European football when I was just just a little boy, Andrew, I was just 12. Mm -hmm. They came in the the old European Cup Winners' Cup and they played um, my team, Sligo Rovers, at home. And it was a big deal they were coming because it was the year after the 94 World Cup and they had all these guys who were starters on the Belgian national team in the 94 World Cup, Frankie van der Elst, Lorenzo Stalins, and in the in um, Italia 90. And so this was a club that supplied a lot of top players to the Belgian national team through a good period, 86 to 94, for Belgian football. So this is a club of some standing, like I said, got left behind in the money stakes completely, as, as did a lot of teams in the Eredivisie and in the Belgium League. But now look at them. Um, they've yet to concede a goal in the campaign. Top of the group on nine points. Um, that's that's crazy to me. No goals conceded uh, to be where they are. And then to inflict upon what I think, I think it was Marca I read, um, suggested was Simeone's most embarrassing defeat in his time as manager of Atleti. That's no joke. Wow. Yeah. Uh, before we move to the other side of this, I guess a couple shout outs, you know, not necessarily teams that I would put in the pleasantly surprised by who looks the strongest so far, but I don't know. The goal that Messi scored today, I'm just, I just want to see that. <laughs> I know, and they wound up drawing 1 1 against Benfica. Like it was, and it ended, you know, like in controversy, Neymar's being ushered off the field in a fit of rage and like there's a coming together at, at full time. So, like it's not a day that anyone will remember for any sort of PSG glory, but I'm just not ready to stop seeing Messi score goals like that. And the the way he sees the field, he sees the play developing before it's developed. That's why he makes the initial pass because he knows the run that he's going to make before he even makes the pass. The way he takes it first time on the left foot, yeah. curls it into the top corner. It's just I could watch it all day. You see, but that is you at your core. The best players all playing together. You just you you love that, but you will not confront the darkness, Andrew. And the darkness I've confronted the darkness. I just I love I want to watch Messi do that. Why can't PSG defend that cross that's put in? That's an it's a good ball, but it's an innocuous ball, and Danilo yeah. or someone should deal with it. And they can't. And that's why I think right now 
Obviously, with the caveat of a World Cup jammed in between, et cetera, et cetera, busy. Yeah, we, we know all the We know all this stuff. I think that uh, right now Man City would destroy PSG if they got a Oh, if they played against one another, I would pick Man City. They're the best team in the world. They're the best team in the world. One other shout-out, too, for the positive. Um, again, hasn't been a great Champions League campaign so far, but, boy, Chelsea looked good today. Now, it comes with a little bit of a dark cloud because uh, Fafana, who scored the opener, then left with an injury. On crutches. Yeah, so, I mean, that's obviously going to be something to, to look out for. And Graham Potter expressed some concern about it at, at the end. Um, Reese James was excellent. Reese James was incredible. Um, and it could have been worse. Mason Mount was barely offside on what would have been an amazing goal, chip over the keeper. Uh, but it was a game that, you know, Chelsea, they needed that in this competition to kind of get their footing under this new manager. Um, and, yeah, I, I just found myself impressed by them. But you're right, Reese James was would be the guy who I'd give the shout-out to. Also, Obama Yang scored a good goal on a Reese James assist. And Milan, really disappointing. Peter Schmeichel said afterwards, I don't know why players prepare. I don't know why they go to the hotel. I don't know why they travel to games, train, eat properly if you're going to turn up and play like that. <laughs> I mean, he Look, I guess he's <laughs> he, right. He's making a point. But it happens. Bad games happen. Yeah. It can't be like every time you have a bad game, why do you even bother? <laughs> Did, did, did happen. It it's more than once that we've seen not Napoli, but more than once we've seen uh, one of the Milan teams come out and kind of maybe make you realise that Syria isn't the level of the Premier League, and maybe why Tamori is the centre back at AC Milan and not the centre back at Chelsea. Well, we were just questioning whether or not he should be for England. Well, so his defense is defending on the cross for the Aubameyang goal was the Reese James yeah, cross yeah. was not good. No, he had a bad day. They all did. It was a bad game. It's a bad game for them. Uh, all right, the disappointing through three games. What's uh, who? What has struck you as most disappointing? Well, you, you, the aforementioned Atleti, considering yep. the size and and breadth of that squad and the players they have, the not to mention the wages of the manager. This is it's not good. Two goals through three games. Awful for Atletico Madrid. Uh, I was reading about them um, at uh, IntoTheCalderon.com. I'm a frequent visitor to that website. <laughs> but, they, but they were talking about Yannick Carrasco, which is interesting, because he was so good for them last season. Maybe their best player. And he's been so poor this season. So they, they break down some of, his, uh, some of his form. They say you'd have to go back 337 minutes to find the last time Carrasco completed a cross. Um, they go on to say Carrasco's dribbling for years. His top asset has become less progressive, too. His per 90 average of 7.42 dribbles last season has plummeted to 5.5 per 90 this season. Uh, the 29-year-old's passes into the penalty area have come from 2.88 down to 1.33 per 90. He's a different player this year. He's a different player this year. Not for the better. Yeah, so I have Atleti on that list. Uh, I have Juve on the list as well. I know they got the win well, today, yeah. but, I mean, they're still... there's a, They're not out of it. I mean, PSG and Benfica both sit on seven points, but Juventus there, their first win, three points. They have work to do. Serious work to do, and I think Benfica, I mean Benfica, when I've seen them, have been better. So um, that's not great either. And maybe I'm being unfair, but Leipzig beating Celtic three-one today, I expected more. When I saw the first performance of Celtic against Real Madrid at home, I know they got beaten. I thought they were unlucky. I expected more from Ange Postecoglou's side. It's been a little bit disappointing. I think Rangers are where they are, but Celtic, their style of play, um, the, some of the players they have, the way they've built that squad, the way they've kind of regenerated themselves, I've been expecting more. The Scottish Premier League has not covered itself in glory so far. Six games between the two, zero wins, 
only one only, point. Only two goals across those six games. Rangers haven't scored yet in this competition. Um, yeah, hasn't. You could group both teams together probably in the disappointment category. No, I think the, I think Celtic's point against Shakhtar, they should have won that game. I think Celtic could have won if they'd scored earlier against Real Madrid, although Madrid were better in the second half. Yeah, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe we put those two together because they love being together. I have to say also, I mean, I, I'm not going to let us get out of this without mentioning Tottenham here. Um, yeah. But- now, look, they're second in the group, so like if things go according to plan, they'll be okay. But and it kind of jives with what we've seen from them meh. during the season. A win and, and, draw a defeat. and again, I'm not going to go too deep because we'll probably talk about it when we do Premier League. So I won't go too deep. But like two goals in three games, I mean, it it is meh. It's very meh. It's it's there's some. I we'll hold it. We'll do it in the Premier League section because. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll do more of it there. God, you're brimming with, with thoughts and ideas. <laughs> Glowing. They're exploding out of me. Um, do you have more, though? I mean, we can... No, that's 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 where I'm at, really, um, with, the, with the Champions League this week. i got to be honest. We should you. probably mention Barcelona losing 1-0 to Inter. Well, we should, actually. And, and why I haven't written that down, because great result for Inter. <laughs> but I have to feel... Barcelona didn't play well, but they should have got something from the game. There was, I, I don't know how there isn't a penalty given for handball. I, what, what I else, don't understand. What is, le- what is there left to say about the handball rule? We obviously don't understand it. We'll never understand it. It's usually not consistent from one game to the next. So I don't know. Look, his arm is up. I guess it's an unnatural position. He's also kind of trying to protect himself against impending contact. I don't know. I don't know. I never know. I'm never going to know. So when it gets and then called, to have a, you accept it. When it doesn't, you accept it because it's that's just how it is. And then to have a goal ruled out for a offensive handball, essentially. It was a rough night. I can understand why Barcelona fans would be upset. Um, generally, they did not. It's not like they ripped into a part. They certainly didn't do that. They had lots and lots of the ball and didn't, do, didn't create a, an awful lot. But... If they feel hard, if Barca fans feel hard done by, I can completely understand why. It's got to be a penalty. Yeah, and Xavi was none too pleased afterwards. Oh, I'm sure well. the discipline Xavi was out. Except <laughs> his discipline was, his anger was. There's a new daddy in town. A disciplined daddy. I'm sure that was, uh, it was all aimed towards the VAR and the referee. But also, uh, Christina Uncle was very interesting about about these decisions that. She talked about the performative nature of the referee going to the screen. She said, in some cases, that that is just the decision. Like, it's it's just to show, kind of almost like theater, to show people that they are looking at this. Look, everyone, as I do my due diligence. Kind of, yeah, that kind of. Thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, uh, I guess that could play into it. Uh, that's the Champions League. I'll tell you what. We'll go ahead. We'll step aside. We got a little bit of Premier League to do with the Manchester Derby over the weekend, with the North London Derby over the weekend. So we'll we'll get to those things. Still a lot to do here on Caught Offside. Don't go anywhere. Back again on Caught Offside. Um, before we get to some of the Premier League stuff that we want to talk about, JJ, I mentioned before how I've been watching movies on the, the train, and we had talked about watching Figo and just how it's just a sensational— People have loved it. It's a sensational football documentary. I couldn't recommend it more. And so you know, sometimes you'll watch a movie, 
and you're you're just riding this high after watching a movie that you like, and you're like, I need to chase this feeling. I need more of this. So I went right from that, and like on Netflix, when you watch a movie, oh, no. you know it'll put you. There's a category underneath of like you may also like. Oh God. So I no oh God. I went. I saw that, and I said, I'm feeling La Liga documentaries. So I went to the. Um, I forget what it's called. Get the ball, pass the ball. Oh, um, about basically the, ri- the the kind of the re rise of Barcelona. Tell me, I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. I've come to love Pep. I love him. I love Pep. I love documentary Pep. He's great. He's charismatic. Relax and drink water. I don't know if I love that guy, <laughs> but like the the guys that were featured prominently as Xavi was tremendously compelling. It's so easy to see why players gravitate towards him you watch the documentary and the, the players are all this was before he was announced this is this was done he wasn't barcelona manager yet this was a couple years ago i think they made this but everyone in it there's a whole section where they're all like oh yeah xavi he'll manage one day he's going to come back to barcelona manage because he's incredible because he knows the game so well because the players respect him so much like that all his teammates worshipped him everyone in the documentary was was great um and just you know there's a whole section on Messi and basically how they all understood, you know, what they what they had here and how are we going to cultivate this and um, the Ronaldinho years, like all of it is just, it's amazing. I really enjoyed it. Um, so I I'll throw that one in the recommendation bin too. May I'm going to throw a future one. I, so I'm going to watch that one now because I have been. I just I, this this one has caught my attention though. It's the Ronaldo original Ronaldo okay. phen, uh, phenomenon. Uh, the rise and fall and redemption of Ronaldo. And they show the trailer. So Ronaldo tweeted the trailer himself. Ah, hmm. it looks. I think this might be right in your in your in your wheelhouse for you. I Andrew. mean, I'm I'm riding the high right now. Oh yeah, bring I, them all my way. He this said, is the moment. He says, "Stay tuned for more details." So I don't know what platform it's coming out, but oh no. A documentary looking at the legendary Ronaldo is coming to the zone. All right. Ugh. Yeah, I so, don't have that. No, I'm not. I'm. I'm not saying the zone's not good, but I don't have that. Yeah. Oh, come well, on. You gotta get a NordVPN or something. Whatever that is. Oh, by the way, so you watch the Figo documentary, uh-huh. guys. Do not bother watching the Pogmentary. Okay. Oh God, it's the opposite of everything the Figo documentary was. <laughs> All right, good to know. This and it's in six parts. Oh, <laughs> self-indulgent nonsense. See, I don't want duds. Oh. I only want to be presented. Don't with the go. Best. Don't don't go near it. I'm, I want to ride the La Liga wave. Yeah, so, but oh, well, so but if you have more, I have warnings. Stay away from uh, the Sergio Ramos doc as well. Oh, okay. Good lord. Uh, the Premier League, JJ, uh, Manchester City. They put a nice six spot down on Manchester United over the weekend. <laughs> the nonchalance with which people have accepted that result uh, is just unbelievable. So, watching that all play out, watching how this season is progressing for Manchester City, even though they're not top. Um, but I'm just watching them play, and I'm seeing this, and there's been a few different iterations of Man City in the, like the Sheikh Mansour era. Yeah. The Aguero, kind of the beginning Aguero dominance. Then there was that team that I kind of looked at, Yaya Torre, as sort of being that was like before. The, the face of the team. No. Well, Aguero scored the winner in the... In their first league title, I sort of view that as like an Agu- okay. The and then Aguero. yeah, yeah, Torre. I mean, Aguero. It's, maybe it's wrong to say him because he kind of 
permeates all like all eras until this one. Well, no, but, but if you want to go Aguero, and then you, if you want to go was, yeah, yeah, Tori, 13, 14, And then 14, I sort of, after that, view it as like the De Bruyne era. Okay. And now we're entering, even though De Bruyne is still there and still brilliant, but now, JJ, there can be no denying it. We are in the Holland era. We're in the Manchester Holland City. tunnel. We're only in no, the infant- that doesn't work. You no. didn't even pick me up on that. What am I supposed to do in a situation? I'm, you want to laugh? You want? I mean, here, go ahead, say it again. The Holland Tunnel. <laughs> I feel better? No, I just oh. said it. I should have workshopped it in my brain. Oh, okay, didn't. But anyway, um, now we're in the Holland era. That's what it is. The different eras. We're in the infancy of this one. I think it's the best one yet. <laughs> I so, think it's the best one yet. A, um, don't I don't know what, like, because remember, even when Man City a couple years ago in their the hundred point season, like think of the games of like eighteen nineteen was yeah, pretty like, good. The, it was it was incredible. But think of like the Southampton two one with Sterling scoring late on like a deflection. Like they had so many two ones. And you don't, team, and you don't like you just want them to wipe the floor with teams like. Every week's an explosion of goals in soccer. <laughs> it's unbelievable what they're doing. It's crazy. And Holland is out of his mind. Well, here's an out of his mind stat. Uh, Duncan Alexander. Holland has now scored 1% of all Man City goals in Premier League and Champions League history. <laughs> Already. <laughs> He's been there a week. It's frightening. It's absolutely frightening. And you're right. That game was over. Was over after what? T- 20 minutes? L- like, they swatted the biggest club in the world in many respects. Well, in many respects. All right, but not, aside, on the, not on the field. No, aside. Now, I think Ten Hag got a, a few things wrong, not playing Casemiro being one of them. Sure. Why not do that? Might be a good time to do it. I mean, honestly, and look, he knows his players in a way that we don't. He sees them in training. But, like, I don't know, part of me is like, well, why'd you get him then? Yeah, exactly, if not for if not for a game like this. Yeah. But just on one of the goals, when you watch Christian Eriksen forlornly tracking back and get, get just doesn't even see Haaland just steam past him. Uh, Foden as well ran riot. They were so far ahead of United. Um, it was crazy to me. Absolutely crazy. And our friend Guy Mowbray decided that it was time to um, it was time for receipts. Alex Ferguson was asked in 2009 if City could ever go into a derby as favourites. He said, "Not in my lifetime." Now it's every time. Oh, jeez, oh, no. uh, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. Did I suppose when Fergie said that? Did he? I mean, what year was it? Did he see that there would be? Two billion worth of investment structurally going into the club. I of guess not. not. I guess not. Um, it was it was frightening, absolutely frightening what they did. And I, by the way, I don't know that this is an indictment on United. Now you're right. There are cer- oh, there are certain things that they could have done differently. Of course, they they didn't need to concede six. But I just think that. But look at the way things have changed in those years since Fergie said that. Right. If if it was Fergie era United, United would be the one in for uh, Erling Braut Haaland in the same way they were in for Ruud van Nistelrooy. And another thing, Phil Foden, a youth player of that talent in the greater Manchester area, United would have had the scouting on him. He would have been at Manchester United. He just would have. Good point. City are no, were nowhere then. 
And I know how they've bridged the gra- gap. We Let's just accept what's happened in the last 10 years. But the fact that it's happened, United's decline is just... I, I listened to Eric Ten Hag afterwards, he, and he talked about process. This is an enormous process. What Ten Hag came up with was that they didn't believe. Um, and he's worth listening to. Eric, you said that the players were undisciplined at following the rules. What rules were they specifically that they didn't follow? Uh, it's starting, once again, with belief on the pitch that you can get a result, that you can beat your opponents. Huh? Uh, so in and out of position. And then the consequence of it is uh, that we don't follow rules and we don't follow principles. And then you don't act as a team and then yeah, uh, it's, it goes away, it, it went. Interesting stuff from Steve McLaren. <laughs> yeah, you can see his point, though. I mean, if if you, he talked about being more on the front foot and everything, and and I guess what the idea to be on the front foot in possession is the idea of playing Ericsson and Bruno together in that midfield, but it just didn't work out that way. They got blown apart. I mean, Grealish, just you know, outstanding game, outstanding, and uh, every part the way City, that first goal that City scored seems so uh, just so simple when you watch it but like that is just hours of of positional play and and playing exactly the way that Guardiola wants and it was I I wonder what it does to Manchester United if it does anything if if they just recognise this is this is where City are they are that far ahead of us and, and we are not Beating them is not the, going to be the barometer of the season. Yeah, but it's still a Manchester derby. That's no, humiliating, but I don't think they can allow that to derail them. They were making progress before that. I think they kind of have to lean on those things. Um, Holland JJ, nineteen goals in all competitions so far this season. That's seven more than the next closest player for any team in Europe's top five leagues. Lewandowski has twelve. Like I was thinking about it, the the Golden Boot last year in the Premier League was twenty three goals. Son and Salah. He's going to be there by New Year's? Like, it's He's obliterating. Like, the only thing stopping him is a World Cup getting in the way of, of him ratcheting Which, by the him. way, he won't be taking part in, so he'll just be resting up. Oh, la-di-da. Yeah, you all go go kill each other in the World Cup, and I'm just going to be here nice and fresh, ready to just dominate when you all get back. It's crazy. He's going to beat Dixie Dean's record, 61. He's so young. I said this to you before the podcast. I'll say it again right now. He's so young. If he spends his career in this league, now we'll see. You know, who knows? I know there was talk about a Real Madrid clause or something, but Pep says that's not true. So but that's whatever. Today, like yeah. teams in other leagues are going to Real Madrid, PSG, whoever they're going to come calling at some point, I'm sure. But if he stays with City or stays in this league, what's he going to do to the goal scoring record in the Premier League? Alan Shearer is going to be just in I a mean, pool of tears. Forget it. In the corner of his room with with whiskey in his underpants, sobbing. Maybe I'm overreacting to something that, like, there haven't he hasn't had that much time here yet. It's all pretty new. If I am, then I'll be wrong. Then I'll just be wrong because this is a ship that I'm going to go down with. I wonder, you know, that cross that De Bruyne puts in. I mean, it's a good cross, but Haaland, like, it's just Haaland's ability, his athleticism to get there and stab at home. I wonder if 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 De Bruyne has an injury, or if. Grealish goes out of form or Gundogan or Rodri have significant injuries is that something that will that will impact him because he's not he is benefiting from one of the most well-oiled footballing machines yeah, in but the he's, world but he's done this everywhere he's been he has 
Yeah. And by the way, City don't change. Like we, De Bruyne has gotten hurt before. Yeah, Bernardo Silva will come in. Yeah, like has it? Riyad Mahrez is barely he's barely playing right now. I know. I'm just I'm just spitballing here. Otherwise, he is going to. He's gonna. They'll have to put a statue up to him outside of the, outside of the Etihad after maybe only two seasons. And yet, JJ, they are chasing Arsenal currently, who are top of the table, 21 points. Manchester City right behind them, on 20 points. Let's talk quickly about the North London derby. Um, well, you let's hear from you because so, well, my thoughts on it. Uh, nothing. I don't want to say anything here that's disparaging or taken in any way disparaging of Arsenal. They were great in this game. It was consistent with how they've looked all season. Front foot, attack-minded, crisp passing. Uh, I thought that they were really good. For me, though, some of the takeaways of this are twofold. One, I'll just go right to what we were talking about before with Tottenham. I won't be around the bush with it. There's just... We keep saying that something's missing. Something's not quite right. I think this is just what they are. And I'm not saying that because they lack talent. I, I, and I'm not saying Antonio Conte is a great manager, and Tottenham have the potential to do really good things with him as their manager. But I kind of danced around this a few weeks ago, and I think we kind of have to double, or I'll double down on it now. It's I don't think it's ever going to look beautiful with him. I think that this is how they're going to play. They're going to load up in defense, and they're going to try to take their chances on the counter, and. They're never going to see a lot of the possession. Like for anybody who out there who is seeing the talent that Tottenham have in attack and thinking, okay, well now it's going to go back to the way it looked under Pochettino. It's just not. It's never going to look like a thing of beauty, but you're going to be willing to put up with it because they're going to win a lot of games doing it. But when they when the wins stop coming, well, then it's going to feel a little bit like it did under Jose. And he got he's he's got prickly again. He had that press conference uh, prior to the Frankfurt nil nil draw, where he talked about um, I can teach lots of people lots of things about football, and where he was questioned about his decisions, questioned about his selections. Why isn't Matt Doherty playing? Why isn't X playing? Why isn't Y playing? Oh my goodness, his comment about Matt Doherty. I mean, I know what he meant. He did. He said McDarty played every game under me until he got injured last season, and then he got uh, he got injured, and I don't think he's back yet. He's not ready yet. He said, he, "If he's not ready, I'm not going to pick him. I, I don't want to no, lose the game." He said something like, "Because I'm smart." I'm smart. Why I, did you not play him? Because I'm something to that effect. Because I don't want to lose the game. Because he's not right, re- right. ready, which sounds yeah. bad for Darty, but I know what he means. Um, so this is what they're going to be then. I mean, look, there will be games like the Leicester City game, but even that, I mean, it was hard to account for Sun coming off the bench and scoring three in 14 minutes. Um, but I, I, thought, I, you know, the, I, look, even under Mourinho, what was the stat I told you? They led all of Europe in goals because they were getting their, until I think Bayern Munich kind of took that from them right near the end of the season, but they were over 100 goals in all competitions. Crazy so, considering some of the dreck that they played. Yeah, it was but, they were hard to watch. But that's, I mean, there's a little bit of that dreck here too. It's a defensive. It's a defensive style. Ooh. I'm not saying it's exactly the same as what you had under Mourinho, but you're going to feel some of those feelings when you watch them play. I guess I got too excited by the end of season games, like where they were dominated in the first half at Villa Park at the end of last season, and yet scored what four was it? Or, or I mean, they went, yeah. they ran riot. But but the the counter attack was so scintillating, lethal, and it, and it it could potentially continue to be so. And that's the thing about like I didn't go too deep into what we were talking about their performance in the Champions League, but like. You know, they it finished nil-nil, and a lot of the game was kind of eh. But, like, they did they did generate chances. It was just one of those games where they weren't finishing them. Mm. And, unfortunately, if you're going to play a style 
that doesn't necessarily generate an abundance of chances, you have to be able to finish the ones that you get. And you think, okay, well, Kane, Son, Richarlison, I'll throw in there, like they should be able to. But if Kane and Son have an off game, and Son, by the way, has been off for every game this season except Leicester City, it's going to be tough. It's gonna, you're going to have some some tough games like that. Now, the other thing I was going to say about this game, I've said this before. Again, this is not a slight on Arsenal. This is not a slight on Arsenal. This is not a slight on Arsenal. But with regards to Tottenham, it's amazing how far you can go if you just don't beat yourself. If you just don't do dumb things, it's amazing what you can achieve. It sounds simple. Just don't be stupid when you play this sport, or any sport for that matter. Just be normal. I saw Hugo Lloris makes a, a terrible blunder. He's been good so far this season. Yeah. I guess those things happen. He's always got one in him. <laughs> He's been he's been very good, so I'm not going to go ahead and say that. But he's yeah, sure, fine. And so I'm watching that, and I think, well, yeah, in a North London derby, you make a mistake like that, can't get much worse than that. I texted you this afterwards. Can't get much worse than that. And then Emerson screams to the world, "Hold my f- beer! <laughs> what is he doing? Like it's one of those challenges." I don't think it was a red card, but you lose all benefit of the doubt of when you do something like that yeah, that's yeah, just yeah. so so unnecessary. Where you are on the field, the direction in which I forget who it was for Arsenal uh, that had the ball. I should have re- I should remember, but like the direction in which they're going with yeah. it. There's no threat. Why? 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 Why do players do these things? Like you, presumably you've risen to this level because but you said that you said before he's got that in him. You don't know what yes, this guy's going to do. He does, but boy, for it to rear its head in that moment, and I understand a North London derby, emotions are high. Maybe you're not thinking the way you're supposed to be, but like, I'm sorry, you just can't do it. And again, I think he was a little bit hard done for it to go to a straight red. He's going to miss three matches now because of it. Um, and it effectively ended the game. They were down. Tottenham were down two one when it happened. Arsenal got one uh, a few minutes after that. That yeah. that finished them off. I, I just want to say on because let's let's look at the Arsenal side of things. You say don't do stupid things. Don't beat yourself. Arsenal gave away a penalty that in the past they would have crumbled from. Oh yeah, that a non- completely unnecessary penalty. Uh, Gabriel's challenge. There was no need for that, especially in the box. The guy was running into traffic. He was going nowhere. So I want to give Arsenal some credit here, Andrew. I, I think Arsenal played better than Spurs Definitely. in the game. Um, I think it was another composed performance from them. And like I said, they, they didn't do the thing that they've done in the past where they where they get cut open like a soft cheese after a defensive mistake. That didn't happen. They, they rolled their sleeves up, got back into the game, got ahead again. And I think the red card obviously had an influence on the match. But um, I think some of that, I mean, I'll, <laughs> I watched that season of... of all or nothing. I think that mentality, I really think it starts with the manager. Like People can make fun of some of the stuff, but he's so upbeat. He's He instills so much faith in these players. Or do you not think they're just... He's so de- constantly wanting to be on the front foot. But is this not just players... I mean, yeah, they got who, good players too, of yeah, course. Yeah, they have. They have better players than they have last season, and they're steeled from the from the collapse at the end of last season. They're probably more resolute in their mindset. Maybe you have to go through it. To understand it and to get Maybe, better. Maybe, but that can break a team too. It can, and it has broken Arsenal in the past. That's why I'm saying this, might this be a different Arsenal? Now it's October, and I'm not willing to say that they're going to win the championship yet. But somebody is. Patrick Redford. 
from Defector. If you don't read Defector, you should, just for David Roth's um, articles, which are brilliant. This is what Patrick says. Eight games into the Premier League season and five months after their season-ending debacle that kept them from the Champions League, it has become clear that Arsenal has turned a corner. They showed all the promise in the world against a relatively soft early schedule, then confirmed it this past weekend by smoking Tottenham. The youthful verve that both animated their resurgent 21-22 and ended it on the sourest possible note has mellowed into straightforward excellence and a slate of new additions this summer has rounded out a good team into a potentially great one. With Arsenal leading the league after eight games, it is not too early to ask, why can't this be Arsenal's year? That is a saucy opening paragraph. Now he goes on. I mean... This, this to me, this to me is, I think, I can't go in as hard as Patrick has here. And I understand what he's saying. And I think Saliba, Zinchenko and Gabriel Jesus have made this team better. And I do agree with them. They have learned. The youth have learned from what happened at the end of last season. But there's a massive cloud in the shape of a Norwegian meathead. That is a part of it. (laughs) Meathead? He might be a brilliant man. How dare you? Yeah, I shouldn't have said meathead. That's derogatory. But a a guy with a big head. Um, And I think that I think Arsenal could do really well and they might be the second best team in England but I just can't see like when you see Man City as they are right now and I know they've drawn games yeah, they've drawn two games so they they have shown some uh, feet of clay but this is it's going to be asking an awful lot of Arsenal to keep this pace guys are going to get hurt like guys can get hurt on City, and like we just said, it doesn't really affect things. I, that that can't be said for every other team. No, and, and by it, the way, that's normal. City are the outlier. And if you go to Arsenal's bench, is is this the bench that can sustain a title run? Like apart from their starting eleven. I mean, again, maybe in another time, but we're in a Manchester City time. Maybe in a more normal time, <laughs> right? Um, but that again, that's not a slight on Arsenal. This is. So I, I understand Arsenal fans are excited. As um, they should be. Also, so, someone got onto me on Twitter. Really, really, it, it got to me a little bit. Uh-oh. And I'm sure he's delighted because I had a quick look at his timeline, which you, you shouldn't do. But I had a little look at his timeline and he, just, he looks like a bit of a knob. I'll be honest with you. A guy who likes winding other people up. So, but, what, um, so you're about to sit here and you're going to now take this Oh, I'm going to take the bait just for, just for argument's sake. Okay. So, so some guy pulled... Uh, audio from like week 37 so the second last week of last season where I said that Arsenal shouldn't be worried about what's above them or striving to get above um, they should be worried about what's coming below them and I was mm. talking specifically about Newcastle United yeah like this may be Arsenal's best and last chance <laughs> to win the league I'm not joking you what's happening at Newcastle and the money that is about to be just injected into this club like do you honestly think that that money is not going to have an effect at some point and is not going to kick in in the same way that it did at Man City and I think my own club included we'll all be looking up at Newcastle and Man City at some point just to clarify what I was talking about there doesn't mean Arsenal can't be good this season or maybe next but that it feels like that window is closing and unless you're bought out by a Petro state or a extremely rich American you're going to be left behind. That's what I'm saying. For everyone. So maybe just enjoy this, Arsenal, because there's dark clouds coming. I'll say this. Um, Gabriel Jesus, I did not see this coming. Not saying that I... I didn't say at any point that it was a bad signing. Jesus unbound. But I did not see this coming. If I was writing a book about the start of his season, it would be, he's been freed 
from the maniacal Pep Guardiola. He's been he's been for, he's so much. He looks like a, a different player. And I'm not saying he wasn't good for City, but he was a systems guy. And now he's just like free. He's like a he's one of the best strikers in the league. He's gone from paint by numbers to Jackson Pollock. Wow, well done. Thank you. Well done. Uh, so yeah, props to Arsenal. They were the better team, undeniably. And um, I don't know, Tottenham are just occupying this kind of weird space right now. It could be. It could wind up still being a very good season for them. They remind I mean, me there's of. Not, there's not like they. This is not a loss that you that you break down and and weep over. Like they lose to Arsenal at the Emirates. It's kind of and then like we'll see what happens in the return leg. Arsenal lose to Tottenham at White Hart Lane. It's like, the fact it was their first league defeat. Um, just kind of the bad form or the 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 indifferent well, start it's, it's, has now culminated in a defeat. Yeah, and and it's just because it's not been pleasing to watch either. yeah that's and like and i think fans are as we lived with the Mourinho years like fans are just very quick to get down faster than they would if it looked different in its style um so when it's kind of dull to watch when a lot of chances are not being generated and you lose it's like it hurts that much more so like i remember when pochettino like they look when they lost 4-2 to chelsea in the fa cup um and it was oh I mean, they lost, but what a brilliant performance! So fun to watch. Well, it's not fun when you're losing, like, and so I like. This is kind of the other side of that. Of you know, okay, well, we're going to change the style up. It's not going to be as fun to watch. So the applause has gone away after some of these losses, and people get down quicker. In, in what's also behind. you're a club that labors under the illusion of the past, which was well, Tottenham that you have always been a, had a. There's the Tottenham way of playing, yeah, and it's not. It's not defensive-minded, counter-attacking football. It's no, possession-based. It's it's... Glenn Hoddle, Paul Gascoigne, guys right. like that. Yeah. Um, quickly, I don't have much on this, JJ, but uh, Bruno Lage out at Wolves. Not, not, not hugely surprised. Um, and the only kind of interesting thing about this may be that uh, Julian Lopetegui is being touted to replace him. He's currently at Sevilla, but I believe he's not. I think uh, he just got the, the. I think he after the defeat to Dortmund, he got the tic tac. I will. Well, I look, think he did. Oh, okay. Well, Lopetegui had a great time at, at Sevilla, and uh, there you go. <laughs> Off he goes, and um, and maybe maybe he's the man to do to do things at Wolves. Yeah, he was uh, he was sacked this afternoon. Oh, okay. So. There you go. Well, so uh, <laughs> clearing a pathway right to Wolves, leaving sunny Spain for Wolverhampton. Okay, that's the way things have gone these days. Um, so yeah, um, Bruno, we hardly knew ye. All I can say, really. Yeah, uh, yeah, they're in the relegation zone right now. They're 18. There's probably more talent on that team. Again, you talk about a team that has some talent, but it's it's been kind of a, a chore to watch. You know, that's that's sort of been what what they are. So I can't say I'm shocked by it. No, no. Um, just before we go to the MLS minute, I have one thing I wanted to squeeze in here: mm-hmm. uh, Liverpool three, Brighton three. It, this has to be. Uh, noteworthy, Leandro Trossard becomes only the third hat-trick scorer at Anfield since the start of the Premier League 30 years ago. The other two were... Oh, okay. Are they guessable? One you'll never get. One you will get. Okay, so this is the third hat-trick at Anfield mm-hmm. in, in what do you say? It's in the 30 years of the Premier League since 1992. One I will not get. The other I will get. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Ronaldo. Rooney. Ben Nisselroy. No, think think the team we just mentioned and think a classic game involving 
uh, at the end of the 2008-2009 season involving our commentator and friend, dear friend, John Champion. And uh, think of a pudgy-faced uh, Russian striker who played for... Oh, my God. Uh, Arsenal-Liverpool... Uh... <laughs> Uh, why Why am I blanking on his name? He scored four. He had his own blog where he used to complain about living in London. Uh, he hated the parking situation. He felt <laughs> he should have been able to park everywhere. Oh. Oh, my God. He used to have a section called Ask Andre. Andre Arshavin. Yeah, there he we go. He scored four. I remember that. Scored four. Um, Who's the one I have no shot at? Peter Unlove, yeah. who uh, played for Coventry City. Uh, hat-trick in March of 1995. Uh, one of the big talking points that came out of this was... Not just Trent Alexander-Arnold's defensive issues and Liverpool's midfield problems, etc. It was the decline of Virgil van Dijk. Yeah, what's going on there? The injury, coming back from the injury first year back, are there issues, etc., etc. What has happened to Virgil van Dijk? And I think that maybe we need to turn to Sick Boy's unifying theory on life. Well, at one point you've got it, then you lose it. And it's gone forever. All walks of life. We all get old. We can't hack it anymore, and that's it. Yeah. That's your theory. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm trying to come up with things, but you can't be imperious forever. You have that sweet spot in your life, Andrew, and maybe Van Dyke is entering, is going outside of it. Now, the last goal, I would blame just as much the covering at the back post by Diaz, who didn't switch on when Milner gets tight. He's got to cover. But, um, but yeah, maybe that's just the way it is. Brighton played brilliantly, by the way, in Dijerby's first game. Yeah. Was that a, uh, was this a long, soulful walk game, or you kind of just shook it off? Uh, in the bar, oh, I did the most, you'll hate me for this. I was at the Monroe, I was, um, I had coffee and a pot noodle for breakfast. <laughs> which is Wait, what was the second thing? A pot noodle. I don't think I know what that is. A very uh, UK, Ireland thing where you pour water into a hardened noodles oh with flavour. This is the most. <laughs> and uh, they're gorgeous. Like Ap- ramen? Like ramen, but pot noodle. Okay. In a pot. Okay. So I had that and some coffee and I watched the game and... <laughs> Um, yeah, I couldn't go for a long walk because I had tickets for the James Joyce exhibition at the Morgan Library. Oh my! Yeah, you see, you peeled off your uh, your Liverpool jersey, jersey. Put on you my tweet. A, you had like a, a black turtleneck. Yeah, underneath you really, you just live the JJ Devaney experience every day to the fullest, don't you? Yeah, it's great, insufferable. And I even said. <laughs> I said to one of the, um, the the bar owner, like, I'm obviously I'm paying for all my coffees. I'm not going to come in here and not pay for stuff when when you're when I'm not drinking. But I said I can't I can't drink because uh, I'm going actually going to the Morgan Library for the James Joyce exhibit afterwards. You couldn't you probably told every person in the bar, didn't you? Anybody interested in Joyce? Who uh, yeah? Who here wants to know where I'm off to next? <laughs> no one. Well, listen up, everybody. Apparently, there's some notes from T. S. Eliot in there as well. Oh, man. Uh, Let's see. A couple quick things on MLS. JJ, LAFC, your Supporter Shield winners. Not so bad for Steve Trundolo's first year in charge. Yeah, excellent. Absolutely excellent and uh, deserved Supporter Shield winners. I I was just Googling material earlier, though, and and this came across me. Uh, Graham Ruthven in The Guardian said that uh, since he scored his goal at the Rio Tinto Stadium 
It's been two months and Gareth Bale hasn't completed a full MLS match, has started just two of the 12 games and hasn't scored since. And he writes, the measure of Bale's time at LAFC was always likely to be different. As long as he arrives in Qatar for the World Cup in good shape, he will consider his decision to make the move to MLS vindicated. Bale once infamously waved a flag that read Wales Golf Madrid in that order and his club might still be at the bottom of this list. It's so weird to me. Just, I thought he'd have more minutes. He only got five minutes against Portland, I think. Um, Yeah, like, it was obviously a headline-grabbing move, but he is not the reason that this is happening. Nothing to do with it. I mean, look, Vela has been great, once again. uh, But, like, Christian Arango, 16 goals this season. Like, and the other thing that should be mentioned, too, with LAFC, we talk so much about their attack, and rightfully so, but defensively, they've been incredibly stout and hard to break down. They are, once again, they are the total package. Um, boy, I mean, I'm mean, i not just saying this as a Union supporter, but I just think that an LAFC-Philadelphia Union final would be fascinating. Just like two clubs of differing methodologies of how they go <laughs> yeah. about things like the union don't spend they're all about the youth system lafc are all about you know kind of like a glitz and glamour signing um but they're both so good like they they're both proof that both both ways can work and it would just uh, it would just be a fascinating final to me and i do think those are the two best teams in the league i, w- I would tend to agree with you on that as well um i should so. mention uh that tonight and the games have just kicked off uh, Phil Neville's Inter Miami are playing Orlando, mm-hmm. and they're currently leading one nil. Should Inter Miami close out in this one and win that game, they will be guaranteed their spot in the playoffs. Wow! So that is That's come a long way. If we went back and listened to some of our early season podcasts, I don't think that was the message you were pushing. No, I still don't think they're any good. Well, there you go. Thirteen losses all season, uh, thirteen wins and six draw. I mean, they have a negative goal differential going into this game. They're not. They're not great, but um, no Pozuelo tonight. So if they if they do do it, or at least I don't believe there's a Pozuelo, uh, because I think he I think he was injured. Um, well, they're two 0 up as we approach yeah, halftime. But it's on, look up. It's right. It's on oh, TV. it is. It's on the. I'm in the studio. <laughs> I with thought T- you were referencing it because you were watching. It. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. no. <laughs> What a fool I am. That is one of my stupidest moments. We're in a studio full of televisions, and that game is on. Yeah. I have not noticed it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, two other things I wanted to mention. One, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the Union this year and what they've done in the Eastern Conference, but, like, quietly or maybe not so quietly, maybe it's on us, Montreal. Have stayed there. They're right there. They're right behind the Union. They're only two points off. They actually have more wins than the Philadelphia Union this season, 19-18. to 18. Um, but I saw something from Tom Boger that was interesting, and it made me kind of really think that like they're kind of in a like uh, we better do this now sort of moment here. He tweeted, um, Montreal midfielder Victor Victor Wanyama announces he'll depart the club at the end of the season when his contract ends. Wanyama, 31, has been integral to team success. Georgi Mihalovic leaving for uh, Azed. Ismail Kone likely to leave here uh, to leave too. Huge questions for Club de Football Montreal this winter. I mean, like, there there is a strike while the iron's hot element to this. Yeah. Um, you know, especially. I mean, look, Wanyama is a brilliant player, but you know, with with how important Georgi Mihalovic is to this team, uh, like this this could be their moment, and you don't know when those come back around again. So, you know, they've they've stayed right near the top of the East. They have not had that drop off, 
they've, I think, proven themselves to be a, a true contender. And uh, this could be – they may sense that urgency because there could be a part of them in the back of their minds that aren't sure if this opportunity is going to come around so easily year after year. I just remember at the start of the season not being sure if they could maintain that. And then the rumors of players leaving, et cetera. But they've, they've been brilliant. And – yeah, it might be now or never. Yeah, maybe maybe that's the game we want to we we really want. We want Montreal to go all the way because they they'd have such. I don't know. It just seemed... I mean, they're fun to watch. Like I I enjoy them. Yeah. Uh, so sure, why not? Um, one thing I I didn't put this actually in the rundown, JJ, but I have to mention it. Uh, the Seattle Sounders. You talk about the way a season started to where it is now. I mean, in, in a year of the Sounders finally being that MLS club to hoist the Concacaf Champions League trophy, and now they're going to miss the playoffs. It's such a God, what a weird season! Um, you'll have you'll you'll find very little sympathy for them in the league, considering how well they do mostly, and they're always in. Sure, they, I, they seem like an ever playoff, ever present finalist, so regularly. It's but like, that's what makes it all the more yeah, it's unusual to see this happen to them in a year where they were capable of like that kind of glory. And it's this club that's always good, mm. and now they're going to miss out on the postseason. It's a very strange thing. I mean, so far off teams like like LAFC and Austin this season. They've been, they've been, uh, yeah. It's, I it's, mean, yes, yeah, Seattle have been sloppy. I mean, I wonder if it's a hard thing to win a trophy like that and then just kind of carry on with sort of like the mundane nature of league play, especially so er- the, the way it falls in the calendar. Do, do, do you lose focus as a player when you win something? I don't know. Maybe I mean, you saw what an emotional moment that was for the club and yeah. the celebrations that ensued, and rightfully so. They weren't wrong. They weren't wrong to have celebrated that way. It was a huge moment for them, for the league, for American soccer. Um, but, yeah, not uh, not going to have a postseason appearance this year. And then finally, J.J., you mentioned Miami. Gonzalo Higuain, a very emotional Gonzalo Higuain, announcing that he'll be retiring at the end of the season. I saw that. Do you know what the first, two, the first things I thought about were? The 2016 Copa America Centenario final versus Chile. His miss, one-on-one with the keeper. Okay, wow. And the second one was the 2014 World Cup final versus Germany. His miss, one-on-one with the keeper. Both of those coming from defensive lapses by Chile and Germany, respectively. And those were history-changing misses. And I think I think he's had a fabulous career. He's, by any standards... Uh, particularly in Syria, with with the goals that he scored, but it's amazing those two those two misses sprung to mind immediately. In fact, I I tell a lie. The fir- the 2016 Copa America miss popped into my head, and I put Iguain miss in, and the World Cup final miss popped up. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that's I ju- I just quite a farewell to a legend <laughs> of the game. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I was, I'm sorry I can't come up with that better. Scored um, 107 goals in 190 appearances at Real Madrid, 71 goals in 104 appearances at Napoli, yeah. um, 48 in 105 appearances at Juventus. Was never really forgiven by the Napoli fans for going to Juve. Yeah. So, yeah. But, yeah, and I think a lot of Premier League fans will remember his time at Chelsea and just think, nah. It, it, like, it was, he fell so... So oh. short of the hype. Old Anglo-centric Andy. It's not just me. Yeah, no, I mean, he wasn't. Was, he was yeah. done. He was done at that point. And uh, he's kind of been hanging on for the last few years. Sort of. I mean, yeah. But we'll see. He could have one last run in him. Um, so, yeah. Props uh, to Gonzalo Higuain. He'll be 35 in December. So, yeah, I suppose he's kind of right around that age where he can... Look, looks older. Yeah? I would think, yeah. Looks older than you or me. Yeah, well, I mean, he's bald. 
right? That doesn't help. Oh, it's kind of like a weathered beard, oftentimes. Uh, so, <laughs> this is the worst send off for any player we've ever given. Like the white, we sh- I should have just stopped. Terrible. Yeah, I don't know what your problem is with this poor guy. I don't. I th- I just think okay, that was a career. All the best, but it was a good. It was a no, really good it was. career. By, like I said, by any standard, he was a. He had a, He had his. He had his spell. He had his. Mo- like I just said, but it wasn't just a spell. You keep using these little buzzwords that have negative connotations, but he, like he was a legitimately good player. Yeah, for a while. He was. at one point he was probably one of Europe's top three strikers. All right, no there question. You go. There, yeah, great. All right, Gonzalo Higuain, everybody. <laughs> uh, Miami, by the way, right on cue win. Two no. That's is that a full time or half time? I can't see from. Oh, it's here. full time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there you go. Um, I'll tell you what. Let's go ahead. We'll take a break. We'll come back on the other side, JJ. Where Jeff Carlisle is going to join us to talk about uh, the Sally Yates report on abuse in women's soccer in the United States. It's uh, it's important. It's troubling, but um, it's uh, it's something that has to be talked about because it's um, objectionable behavior that needs to be called out to help prevent it from happening. Uh, in the future. So Jeff will join us next to do just that. Uh, more caught offside still to come. Oh, back now, winding it down here on Caught Offside. We spoke about this earlier, the uh, the Sally Yates report on abuse within NWSL and just how disturbing the findings are. Um, and to talk a little bit more about that now, ESPN FC's Jeff Carlisle joins us here on the program. Jeff, what's up, man? How are you? I'm doing well, guys. How are you? Oh, we're doing good. We're doing good, although this report is – I mean, it's troubling stuff to read it, um, and there's so many elements of it that make it troubling, which we'll go through. But I guess the the place that I wanted to start with you, um, Jeff, there's, there seems to be so many villains to kind of come out of all this. The central one, perhaps, Paul Riley. Can you go deeper with us? Tell us a little bit about Riley and, and his role in all of this. Well, I mean, Paul Riley was a highly regarded coach in the women's game. I mean, he had been involved in women's soccer for years and years across multiple leagues. And, um, I mean, I interacted with him on rare occasions. Uh, very charming guy, gift of the gab and all that. Um but it was back in, in 2015 that uh, Monish Jim and Sinead Farrelly, you know, lodged a complaint uh, with Portland Thorns management about uh, Paul Riley's behavior. And, uh, you know, apparently this this had been going on for years. Um, you know, he had he had a ongoing sexual relationship with Sinead Farrelly and uh, was, had been harassing Monish Jim. And finally, they, you know, Monashim had had enough and filed a complaint and Sinead fairly backed it up. And um, but, you know, what's what's amazing is is just what happened from there. I mean, there was an eight day investigation by the Thorns and they fired Paul Riley for cause. But, you know, that's when kind of the the, the sleight of hand, the the, you know, the the the, the trickery, the, you know, the cover up, if you will. Um, his, his firing was portrayed as as simply a, a parting of the ways due to performance. And, you know, he wanted to go back to the East Coast and, and this and that. And, um, you know, meanwhile, you know, he again, he was fired for cause. And so uh, on top of that, you know, Gavin Wilkinson basically 
gave him a glowing recommendation uh, when Riley applied for the job with the Western New York Flash, and everything was was kind of swept under the rug, and and everything was, uh, uh, you know, covered up basically. And you know, it, it went even higher. I mean, Merritt Paulson said, you know, he had a lot of affection for Paul Riley, and so. It, which is just kind of stunning to me. I mean, I, how can you separate the the coach from the way he treats his players, from the way he behaved? Um, but anyway, the the team ends up getting moved to North Carolina. That you know, Pyrelli goes with them, and I think he kept a lower profile in North Carolina, but he was still doing the same thing. And um, obviously, all that came out in the article in the Athletic, you know, a little over a year ago. And um, but it, it, this isn't just about Paul Riley. It's about the people around Paul Riley who covered up for him, allowed him to work again and put players in harm's way. And that, you know, that's kind of a recurring theme in the in the Yates report. I mean, it happened with Christy Holly um, and, and really his his involvement. That was that was a new development for me. I, I was not aware. Uh, I, I knew he had been fired, but I didn't know why. And um, that was a, a real punch to the face. I mean, you, you read that right off the bat in the report, and it, it's just kind of shocking that you know he he did what he did, and he did it for as long as he did across again across multiple teams. And so um, you know, and then Rory Dames figure you know figures into the report as well. But um, those three uh, those three coaches are, are kind of at the center of this report, as well as the fact that the three clubs involved Portland, Chicago, Louisville to varying degrees um, impeded the investigation in one way or another. And so again, you, you add that all up and it's, it's just, it, it's mind boggling and horrifying yeah. the way not only the coaches behave, but the executives and owners around them behaved because there were so many opportunities to do the right thing. I mean, that's what, that's another one thing I keep coming back to so many opportunities to do the right thing. And these clubs could not bring themselves to do it. And it, it's, again, you, you think about the, you know, the, the damage that's been done for the rest of these women's lives. And, and so yeah, I just, I read it and I, I, I just, I have such a hard time wrapping my head around it that people could engage in that kind of behavior and, and continue to uh, cover up and uh, excuse it. Jeff, one thing I couldn't really understand, and um, I'd lo- I'd love to know what you think about this, is that this was a, a fledgling league, and it's I I understand institutions want to you know engage in self preservation, but Paul Riley, okay, he was a he was a coach of of high standing in the women's game, but. But, I mean, Christy Holly was a, a relative nobody. Like, what was there to be gained from protecting them initially? Like, why, why apart from self-preservation, why wouldn't they just, why wouldn't the league, why wouldn't the owners just come out and say, this is what's happened, this is why these, these people have been fired? Like, it doesn't make sense to me. Protect the brand. That's... The, the ethos that keeps popping up again and again and again. And, and we've seen it 
in you know the Catholic Church, and we've seen yeah, it with Penn State, and we've right. seen it with USA Gymnastics. But I mean, I, we, you know, sorry, the, the Jeff, list goes on. Sorry, I don't mean to cut across you, but like the, again, this was—I know it was the new iteration of of women's soccer in America. I know people were desperate for it to work, but. You know, the Catholic Church is a multi-billion dollar organization, as is many other sporting organizations that have encountered this, Penn State, etc. You know, women's soccer isn't. Like, mm-hmm. what was what was there really to lose by, say, Paul Riley or Christy Holly taking litigation against against the league for for their dismissal or or for the league speaking out about what they did? Well, I think the fear is that the, the entire league would fold. And, you know, they, you've seen it with two other women's professional leagues since, you know, since 2000, you saw two other leagues go under mm. due to, you know, basically they, they couldn't pay the bills. They couldn't, you know, no one, no, people got tired of losing money on, on women's professional soccer. And so I think there was a real, um, you know, ethos of don't rock the boat. Don't say anything that is going to cast the league in a bad light. Otherwise, right. you won't. You might not just be out of a job. You'd be out of a career. I mean, you're going to have to stop playing professional soccer unless you're willing to go overseas somewhere. Right. And there are players that aren't. It's not for everyone. And um, you're going to have to find a nine to five job and 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 try start earning a paycheck that way. I mean, you're talking about people's dreams here of playing professional soccer and maybe you know, progressing far enough to get called up to a national team. And so it was really kind of a a bit of a survival instinct in, in kind of a perverse way um, where, you know, again, don't rock the boat. Don't do anything that's going to put anything in a bad light. Or otherwise, you're going to ruin this for everyone. Jeff, how much do you, uh, it's something that comes across from the, from reading the Yates report, how quickly the, the new league was, was, with respect, thrown together, was put together. We found out that there wasn't really that many people. There was only, what, two or three people fully employed in the league office. It was it was thrown together really quickly. There did not seem to be major oversight. Uh, coaches got in without the correct coaching badges. How much do you think uh, the haste at which the league was put together and its, its, its small standing at the start enabled this abuse to happen? I mean, that was a big part of it. I mean, everything was done on the cheap. You know, no one wanted to to really spend any money. And I think that's what's kind of different now about the league is you have owners, you know, like Alexis Sohanian, you know, like Chris and Angie Long in Kansas City, um, who are really investing big time money. And um, but that wasn't the case when the league was starting up. It was it was really how can we minimize costs? You know, you had Arnon Whistler, who owns apartments in Chicago, putting putting players up there. I mean, again, everything was done to try to keep costs to an absolute bare minimum. And um, the players aren't getting paid very much. Um, I mean, the big thing about the CBA that was uh, ratified earlier this year is I think the minimum salary went from 22000 to 35000 um, There's no way that you can survive in some of these big cities you know, on 22,000 a year. No. And so it creates a, a huge power imbalance where the the coaches, the coaches is everything, you know, they can make or break careers. They can make your life miserable. Um, and, you know, they can engage in the behavior that, that, that some of these coaches engaged in. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it, it was, 
the the amount of investment was so small that it just you know it wasn't in some cases it was professional soccer and name only and so i think all of that contributed to to what took place jeff you spoke before about this culture of of enabling uh, how there were, you know, different different stops along the way where this could have been ended and multiple people did the wrong things to allow this sort of culture to continue. And for me, when you talk about that, it all kind of leads to Lisa Baird, the, the former NWSL commissioner. Uh, and I'm wondering, can, can you speak at all to her role in this and just how, I mean, you talk about enabling. It almost felt to me that she just didn't want to know what was going on. I mean, how how integral was she to this toxic culture? Um, I mean, I, I, I think she had a big role by the end. And when I say end, I say, you know, when, when the athletic article first came out, you know, late, late September, early October of last year, I mean, I, I think her role was, was in some ways, it was the pebble that started an avalanche, um, you know, by, by not really taking Sinead Farrelly's and Monashim's accusation seriously or the fact that she didn't show a willingness to really look into them mm-hmm. I, I mean I think that was that was the tipping point because at that point Monashim and Sinead Farrelly decided to go to the press and tell their story and so I mean in some ways Lisa Baird had a minimal role I mean she was not NWSL commissioner when Paul Riley got fired in 2015 I mean that was Jeff Plush true yeah um and there were, I think there was even a, a commissioner or someone running the league in between that. And so, but in other ways, she played a huge role because by failing to act when when shown you know considerable evidence, that set in motion, you know, a lot of different things in terms of players risking everything and coming forward to tell their stories and everything in some ways fell apart from there and, you know, but it, it set in motion a ton of things. So um, I, I don't look at her as necessarily the principal villain. Cause I mean, there's so many, mm-hmm. um, but she was a villain and, you know, her, again, her inability to act, you know, push people over the edge. There's so many revelations uh, in this report. Um, what, something that struck me early on was, was page 10 um, I'm just going to read it quickly. Following media reports of Riley's treatment of players in 2021, the Red Stars retained a sports psychologist to interview each Red Stars player anonymously and compile a report on the team environment. The report further corroborated the 14, 15 and 18 player complaints and concluded that Dames created a culture of fear and was emotionally and verbally abusive. Players described him as condescending, manipulative, aggressive, insulting and an intimidator. The psychologist observed that 70% of the players interviewed, including most starting players, reported emotionally abusive behaviours and that many players failed to recognise certain behaviours as abusive because they were so ubiquitous in women's soccer. That seems to suggest that there, there is a deeper problem in, in the women's game in America, Jeff, that needs to be addressed ongoing and after this report. Yeah, I mean, one of the findings in, in the Yates report I mean, you know, it's contained elsewhere is just how early this starts. I mean, right. it starts in youth soccer and, you know, where, you know, I mean, Rory Dames had a reputation. I mean, I keep talking about making or breaking a career. I mean, he, 
he was a coach in the Chicago area who was going to get you to the right school, who was going to help you get to the pros, who, who someday might help you get to the national team. And so, you know, it started at an early age. And um, it's, I mean, you read some of the things that he called his youth players. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's shocking. Um, and, but I think sometimes when you, when people are chasing a dream, I, I think, you know, they're, they're willing to put up with a lot. And so, and again, I think they, you know, players kind of became conditioned to think, well, this is just the way that it is. This is, these are the sacrifices I have to make in order to reach my dreams. And, uh, which is, it's terribly sad because <laughs> this is by no means, it's not the only way. It's not the preferred way. It's not anything close to being the best way. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so tragic. I mean, think about all the players that didn't make it. Think of all the players that put up with that and yeah. then didn't make it. And, um, and we'll probably never hear a lot of those stories. And it's, you know, that's, it's, it's very sad as well. Uh, Jeff, last one from me. You mentioned Merritt Paulson earlier. Uh, he has, of course, stepped away from decision-making from the Portland Thorns. Um, now I've seen that the Timbers Army is calling for him to sell the Timbers and the Thorns. The fans have turned on him. He, he's such a, a big figure in this sport, in this country. But do you see a world where he can return to his role with these two clubs? I mean, that depends on how much vitriol from fans that he's willing to put up with. Um, I don't think his fellow owners either in MLS or in the NWSL are going to be the ones to kind of, you know, push him out. Um, you know, I was reading a report today from the athletic where 75% of MLS owners have to vote to kick somebody out. And that I just, I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, now, whether it ends up being a Deloy Hansen situation or a Robert Sarver situation where they basically just decided this wasn't as much fun as it had been and isn't worth the, the, the grief that they're receiving. And so they agree to sell the team. And, um, you know, so we'll, we'll see if that's, that's what Paulson ends up doing. I mean, Keep in mind, though, this a lot of his identity is wrapped up in the Timbers and the Thorns. I mean, it, this yeah. wasn't a case where he made a ton of money elsewhere and then kind of fell into into sports ownership. I mean, this is kind of, you know, along with his, his father, who's a former Treasury secretary, um, this was kind of his his baby, his project. And so it, it may be that he's not going to be willing to give it up very easily. Um, so I think in terms of the mechanics of ownership, I think he, he could continue, but it's just a question of, you know, does he want to put up with the, the fans anger on a weekly basis? I mean, what, you know, if, if they spot him in his, in his suite at, at Providence park and start hurling and, you know, insults at him, I mean, why would he want to put up with that? I mean, I know I would um, but again, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, you know, it's, you know, Gar Don Garber just came out with a statement, you know, he said Paulson did the right thing. I think he called it a good initial step. So clearly the, the, the league is still, uh, mulling things over and, and trying to figure out how to move forward from this, but it's, you know, 
it's certainly, I mean, you think, you think back to just two years ago and what Paulson's reputation was in the leagues and in Portland and the, and where it is now, it's, it's really, it's it's quite stunning. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, Oh man, what a story. What a just terrible story from top to bottom. Uh, Jeff, we appreciate your expertise on it, taking us through uh, all the ins and outs of this. Thanks so much, Jeff. Anytime guys. Our thanks to Jeff Carlisle on that. Yeah. Such a, it's such a difficult read, um, Sally H report, but it's, I mean, what it outlines is just so systemic and so widespread and, you wonder if it's a tip of the iceberg moment. If if a, if it takes something like this being as public as this has been, whether it be from the athletics reporting and now all the way through Sally Yates's report, if if other players will come forward with similar stories of their own to try to, you yeah. because you, know, you see this now and like that, I'm sure there's this. It's hard for you and I to relate. You know, sitting here as two like, white men, like it's not. This is not a position that we've found ourselves in necessarily. So, you know. I'm sure that there's an intense feeling of loneliness when you're kind of the person who's on on the wrong end of a situation like this. And now this being as public as it is, will other players come forward and out people who are kind of perpetuating this kind of behavior and, and get them out of the game so that that's really the only way this behavior can be eradicated? Yeah, and I wonder as well what the further implications for uh, USSF are. I mean... This is something that happened on their watch. They're supposed to be guardians of the game in America. Um, what what does that mean? Do we need a, a whole new set of of um, safeguards? I, it, it definitely in NWSL, it would seem to be the case. But but what? Well, that was one of the things that was jarring. You know, I was listening to the ESPN Daily podcast where they did an hour on this, and one of the most jarring parts of it, aside, you know, I talked to Jeff about the Lisa Baird stuff. That was really powerful stuff to me. Um, her kind of turning a blind eye to a lot of what went on, but also, like you said, the safeguards that there were none. That there were just there was no there were no policies that you know no. they'd go to NWSL and ask for um, like the what were the rules against you know these sorts of things, and there were just there weren't any. What permeates part of the, certainly part of the early part of the report is the idea that, and I mentioned it with Jeff that this kind of obviously not the the severe end sexual abuse that went on or sexual coercion but the um the verbal psychological emotional and belittling of players starts really early and Sally Yates suggests a lot of the stuff that that transferred through to NWSL has its roots in an earlier part of the game which was beyond the purview of the report but you know Having coached youth soccer in America, you do occasionally see a really just aggressive things, and it stops you in your tracks. And you think that's not okay. I've been, I, I've seen some stuff, just the shouting and berating of players, young players, um, girls and boys. That is, you, it wouldn't be acceptable to do it to an adult. How is it okay to do it to a someone who's in the formation of their person? Not not good enough, and um, and maybe there needs to be a a wider a wider review all the way down, right down to codes of conduct for coaches, and really, you know, the day of of I know you always need volunteers, but like seriously heavy vetting of of candidates to work with you players, and 
and maybe maybe this is the beginning of 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 a big change in attitude. But I hate that it had to get to this point. It's it's there's a lot of people, a lot of damage that cannot be undone now. Yeah. And those dreams of those players were not protected. And it's tough to be a whistleblower when you're on thirty grand and you're hoping to advance in your career. And this is the only avenue for you, as I mean, Jeff, Jeff said. Jeff is right. Like yeah. there, there is this like hindsight is what it is. But you're right, though. In the moment, there is a "don't rock the boat" sentiment. I think my question to him was more about like if you're Merritt Paulson or someone, like just out this guy, yeah, just out them. You're the one that that can protect the players. The players, they can't do anything. They're just happy to get a wage, happy to be living their dream out. And every time these things happen, like I remember thinking when Penn State happened, it was okay, well this will be this will be the teaching moment for the rest of time as to why why you don't cover up mm. this sort of malfeasance. Like this is this is it. But then you see it again. You, like no there is no learning. Like it's easy to sit here on this from the sidelines and say like, oh well, I, you know, it, it seems so simple, just out them. But like these people find themselves in these situations, and maybe they let one thing go, and they feel like, well, now I'm in it. Now I'm part of this. I can't. I've got to keep the cover up going. Large, the ability of large institutions to go straight into shell, protect themselves mode, yeah. is un, unrivaled, and across the broad scope of business and sport, you see it all the time. Just seems like a weird human instinct to, you know, kind of lean towards protecting the offender rather than the victim. Yeah, it um, it's disturbing. Yeah, it's very disturbing. But sometimes, I guess the calculation is, oh, this is going to cause too much. Right. Look at the protect the brand, protect, and it's 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 putting finance and revenue and money ahead of ahead of people, and yeah. th- and that can never be good. Yeah, what a mess! What yeah. a mess! Well, our thanks to Jeff for uh, for going through it with us. We appreciate uh, his time on a, on a tough subject. Um, it about wraps it up. I know uh, there was one other thing you wanted to get to. Oh, Andrew. Yeah, there's one other thing. Coach Andy's needed. Oh. There's been some jiggery-pokery going on in a division of the Russian League with a penalty. I know you've seen... I've seen it. Uh, can you... Can, the, I, you need to adjudicate. Uh, Most I would people describe th- it as somebody... He's taking a penalty, and in the motion of completing the penalty kick, he flips. So he scoops the penalty... Successfully to the net, I'll, I'll I'll have you know, and as he scoops, he lit, throws himself backwards into a, a, a somersault, backward somersault. How, I, how would I adjudicate? So here's how I adjudicate it. You all know my feeling on the Penanka. Um, I think it would be anything. It, it would be utterly fraudulent for me to have any other opinion than. What are you doing? What like? <laughs> There's just no reason, you know, like just score the goal, man. Yeah. Just it's a penalty. I thought you'd go this way. And like, there's a, I don't know. I just, I guess I'm just never gonna be really impressed with scoring a penalty in a cool way. Like, it's a thing that you're supposed to score on. Like, so I, th- I think if there was a, uh, like, good to go back to um, Hank Scorpio's idea of having the premier, the best Premier League, and and a kind of an All Star showcase. Showcase. If there's a fun moment where, hey, look at these crazy penalties. Of course, fine. A, a testimonial, whatever. A, but yes, things, a friendly things that matter. You can't do this. No, it's not like I don't know. I just 
I don't want to see. I know I come across as like I am the fun police here. Well, it's I usually see, me. People are people are doing something different and fun, <laughs> and I am telling them to stop immediately, or you will be off the team. Uh, so I understand how it's coming across, but like you got a lot of people on that team who are working really hard, and you're going to go and and kind of make it about you by taking a penalty like that. I just think it's I wouldn't have it on my team. And if we are going to follow the uh, PFM proper football man laws, then if Richarlison is getting booted for doing uh, keepy uppies in the middle of a game. This guy, he's going to get he's going to get a full Nigel De Jong to the chest for that. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't wouldn't fly on my team. I think that's consistent. Yeah, no, I think you're right. You're very consistent with your policy. Weeks wages, train with the reserves. Yeah, just that's can't why, go on. That's why. <laughs> Now, I will say this, in fairness. He executes perfectly. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And if this is a thing that this guy has perfected. Well, that's the other thing. He's got to have been practicing that. Of course. You don't just suddenly do that. Can you imagine the training sessions? All right, guys. uh, That's us done for the day. Uh, Anybody want to hit the gym, you're welcome to. There's the recovery baths. um, Or just grab your lunch and go home. That's us done for the afternoon session. Dimitri. Dimitri, what are you doing? Dimitri, you'll break your neck. Coach, I have to. I have to do this. Dimitri, this is not happening outside of this training field. And, like, it's different to me than when you see the highlights of guys who do this on throw-ins. Like, you'll have a guy who will, like, flip in his throw-in. But, like, to me, that's, again, probably not necessary, but more acceptable because I think they use the forward momentum that they gain from the flip, from the inertia of the flip. They they can launch the ball farther, I think, doing it like that than if they were just doing a standing, a regular standing two-foot throw-in. The FAI retweeted uh, from a a girl's school soccer game, uh, a girl who did the uh, ball on the ground flip throw. Mm -hmm. I mean, she threw it straight to the opposition. (laughs) But if you're trying to go for distance, yeah, if that's d- what you need, no. then you can you can throw it farther, I think. Do it. If you know how to do it, I think you can throw it farther. But I don't know that you can convince me flipping on a penalty kick is a better way of taking a penalty. No, definitely not. It's right. it's not. It's not it the idea of the penalty is to punish the par- the opposing team who have caused an infraction in the penalty box. So put the ball in the net. Just score the goal. Come on. Just score the damn goal. Hey, that'll about wrap it up here on this edition of Caught Offside. Our thanks again to Jeff Carlisle. We'll be back, of course, with another edition uh, next week. JJ, this was fun, my friend, as always, to you, I say. Take it later, fun boy. See ya. Just score the damn goal. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast.